Father, we want to give you the glory and the praise this morning for our, our great salvation. We thank you for our amazing Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who left the glories, the magnificence of heaven and became a servant, became like us in every respect, yet without sin, and who died on a cross and became sin that we might become as righteous as God is through him. Father, we are so truly blessed to know you, to be called the children of the living God, to have the hope of eternal life. And Lord, it's our desire as we live this life that you have called us to live, as we journey this journey that you have called us to traverse. Lord, our desire is that we would do it for your honor, for your glory, and your praise. Lord, we confess that we're a proud people. We are proud people. And pride is such, an, it's such a terrible sin, yet it resides in all of us. Father, give us a glimpse of the humility of Jesus this morning, that our pride may be tamed, and that we would humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God. So work in us, we pray. Use your word to challenge and to change us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to encourage you to turn to the book of Philippians, please, and we're going to continue our our journey through this book. A couple of weeks ago, I mentioned to you that I like listening to podcasts. I mentioned R.C. Sproul's uh, ministry, Ligonier Ministry, Renewing Your Mind. And another one that I listened to is a Scotsman. I was born and raised in Scotland until I was nine. I uh, decided I wanted to immigrate, so I brought my parents with me and we came to Canada. Um, but Alistair Begg is a preacher in, um, I don't know if you, does anybody listen to Alistair Begg's, uh, yeah, he's a good Scotsman. You know, I would be a famous preacher because if I had kept my accent, I wouldn't just sort of talk about the sovereignty of God, I'd, I'd be talking about the sovereignty of God, and people would be like, wow, that's amazing. So I listen to Alistair Begg, um, he's, a, he's a very good preacher, but what you'll notice what, in, in Alistair's preaching is that he will often quote a hymn to kind of make his point. And I did it, it wasn't in my notes, but I did the same thing yesterday, I, or yesterday, last Sunday in the first service, I think it was, when I was talking about the grace of God, uh, I, t- I quoted that hymn, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. So when we do that as preachers, we're in good company because there's biblical warrant for it. The Apostle Paul does it, and he does it in Philippians chapter 2, beginning at about verse 6. In this passage of Scripture that we're going to look at today, we're either studying a hymn of the church, the church that, uh, the, a hymn that the church used to sing in worship, or it's an, a creed or a confession that the church would Um, recite together to affirm their shared faith. So I want to read this passage of scripture to you, and then we're going to spend some time studying it. Let's begin at verse 5. Paul says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, Taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, 
even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So why does Paul include this creed or this hymn in this book, in his letter? Was his purpose to teach us more Christology or help us understand more about Jesus? Personally, I don't think so. I think he includes this hymn to help us understand something about what it means to live a life worthy of the gospel. You'll remember last week in chapter 127, Paul begins this discussion about what it means to live worthy of the gospel. What does it mean to live worthy as as a citizen of the kingdom of God? And we talked last week about three things that we are called to do as citizens of the kingdom of God. We are to strive for the faith of the gospel. We are to boldly proclaim and be willing to suffer for the gospel. And we are called to love each other the way Christ loved us. Those are the things that kind of characterize, define those who are living worthy of the gospel. Citizens of the kingdom who are living worthy of the name of Christ. But there's one more thing that I think Paul wants us to understand. And that thing is humility. That that quality is humility. And so in order to make his point about humility, he quotes this hymn that they had already been singing in the church. Probably for 10 years now, the church in Philippi had been singing this hymn. It's very likely that Paul taught them that that, that hymn. He probably learned that hymn in Antioch when he first went there as a young Christian. This was something they would sing. This was something they would recite together to affirm who Jesus was. And the essence of this is humility. Humility. He says, have this mind in you or this attitude or the perspective in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. In other words, he's saying to them to be a model citizen of the kingdom of God, to live worthy of the kingdom, it's critical that you not only think like Jesus, but that you act like Jesus with reference to to humility. Humility is the crowning virtue in the Christian life. The antithesis of of this virtue of humility is pride. Humility is the fountainhead from which all other virtues flow. It is literally the oil or the lubricant in the gears of the church that caused the church to function well. Humility creates an ethos in which love flows beautifully. Love flows easily. And so what Paul is saying here is is this. Listen, we have a beautiful example in Jesus We have a wonderful example in Jesus of beautiful humility. I want you to think like Jesus, and I want you to act like Jesus. Not only do I want you to be proud of the gospel and boldly proclaim it, not only do I want you to suffer for the sake of Christ and and suffer for the gospel, not only do I want you to love each other in extraordinary ways, I want you to seek humility. I want you to be like Jesus, humble like him. 
And in this passage of scripture, he gives us four things that show us the humility of Jesus. And I just want to walk through them with you and help us understand a little bit of Christology so that in understanding who Jesus was, we might aspire to be like him. We might aspire to think and behave like our Savior. And the first thing he talks about is Christ's humility in heaven. Look at verse 6. Well, let me read verse 5 again. Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. In this verse, Paul gives us a glimpse into eternity past. He gives us a glimpse into heaven before the incarnation. And the first thing he says is this, that Jesus was in the form of God. What this means is that he was the same as God, the same essence, the same substance as God. What Paul is saying in this passage of Scripture is that Jesus was, is, and always will be God. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says this, that he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. The reason that verse is really, really critical is that it tells us that Jesus doesn't reflect the glory of God. Jesus radiates the glory of God because he is God. Jesus is divine. And the early church understood that and celebrated that from the outset. So when Dan Brown in the Da Vinci Code and other liberal theologians tell you that Jesus became God at the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, you can say to them, that is garbage, that is nonsense. The early church was celebrating the divinity of Jesus Christ in 61 AD. Paul wrote this book from prison, and he was reminding them of a creed that the church had already been singing, the church, a creed that the church had already been reciting for years about the fact that Jesus is God and always will be God. He was, is, and always will be God. By the way, the reason the Council of Nicaea made the decision to enshrine that in, in Christian doctrine, I guess, was because of certain heresies that were going around at that time that were claiming that Jesus was not God. And so the church just basically got everybody together at the Council of Nicaea and said, well, what do we believe about Jesus? And everybody said, well, we believe he's God. He's always, that's what we've always believed. So well, now we'll just enshrine this. And the Council of Nicaea wrote it down as Orthodox Christian gospel, Christian truth. But the second thing that we learn is that although he was fully God, he did not grasp or strive to hold on to or strive to retain his position in heaven. Instead, he willingly chose to empty himself. So the question is, why did he do that? Why did he not strive to hold on to and grasp and retain the position that he had in heaven as God? Why did he empty himself? And the answer simply is this, because of Adam's sin. Because of Adam's sin, we, humanity, were alienated from God and God from us. So in eternity past, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit devised a plan by which lost sinners could be saved. By which that gulf that we just sang about 
could be bridged. But there were conditions. God's holy, righteous, and perfect character had to be preserved while at the same time allowing God to save fallen sinners. We talked about this last week, the dilemma of God. And this plan involved Jesus humbling himself and becoming a man and going to the cross and becoming sin for us. In the council of eternity past, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit decided on a plan of salvation. And the only way that we could be saved is that Jesus had to choose to humble himself obey his Father, and become sin on our behalf in order that we could become as righteous as God is. So don't ever believe that when Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will but yours. Never believe that that's the first time Jesus wrestled with this issue. Before time began, in eternity past, there was a council, a discussion in the Trinity about how to save lost humanity. And the only solution to this was that the Godhead must be cleaved. That God the Father would turn his back on his Son and forsake him. Because the Son would humbly choose to go to the cross and become sin for us, become cursed for us, become vile for us, so completely vile and disgusting in his father's sight that for the first time, the father turned his face away. And Jesus chose to obey. Jesus chose to humble himself and come to earth to die. He obeyed his father. And the point that I just want to, the, the application is pretty simple. Real humility in our lives begins with a choice to live in obedience to God. Real humility, Christian humility, doesn't begin when we begin to serve one another. It begins when we get this issue ironed out, this issue of obedience, this issue of acquiescing to the will of God. Christian humility begins when we acknowledge that it is our responsibility to obey Him. We don't have an option. We can't equivocate on this issue. If, if, if we desire to be truly humble as Jesus was humble, we don't get to equivocate. We don't get to prevaricate. We don't get to scratch our head and choose what we want to do. There is only one response, and that response is not my will, but yours. Not my will, but yours regarding my finances, regarding my sexuality, regarding how I love my spouse, regarding how I raise my children, regarding how I work, regarding how I drive my car, regarding every facet of our lives, Christian humility begins when we bow the knee to Jesus Christ and follow his example 
of obedience. Of obedience. The problem is we're proud, as I said in my prayer. And some people sitting here right now, you're thinking, well, I'm not that proud. Let me ask you this question. This is a little diagnostic question. If somebody shows you a picture and you know you're in the picture, who do you look for first? (laughs) You're so proud. You're just so proud. We all are. We all are. We are proud people, and obedience and deference to God is not natural. But Christian humility, humility in the Christian walk, doesn't begin in our relationships with one another. It begins in our relationship to God. So have you settled this issue? What does Christian humility look like? Well, let's go back, chapter 2, look at verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. That's what Christian humility looks like. What would your life be like if you chose to obey God and did nothing from pride or self-aggrandizement, or rivalry, but in genuine humility considered your wife, your husband, your employees, the people you work with more important than yourself. What would it look like if we didn't just look out for our own personal interests, but also were genuinely concerned for the interests of others in this church, your neighbors, That'll never happen. You'll You'll never begin to think that way until you at some point in your journey bow the knee to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and you say to him, I bow the knee, I submit. I'm going to live in deference to you. You have, you have taught me in your word what you require. I will obey. Now, you won't do it perfectly. You're going to fail. You're going to mess up. You're going to, but that becomes the passion of your heart. That's where humility begins. Genuine humility begins in your relationship to God in an attitude of submissiveness. Secondly, Christ, Christ's humility in service. Look at verse 7 with me. But he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And then Paul qualifies it, even death on a cross. Now, the phrase he made himself nothing is something that we need to understand. The literal rendering of that phrase means to empty himself or he laid aside his privileges. And so the question that we have to ask is, how did that happen? What did that mean? And it's important to note that the question shouldn't be this. Of what did Jesus empty himself? Because Jesus didn't empty himself of anything. He was, in, in, in the incarnation, he was fully God. He was completely God and completely man. The question is not, of what did Jesus empty himself? The question is, into what did he empty himself? And this is critical to understand. Jesus didn't empty himself of anything. 
In his incarnation, he emptied all of himself into human form. He became a servant. He became a slave. He became a man. He was fully God, and he took the form of a servant, became fully man. He was of the essence and the substance of a man, of a slave. Now, at certain points, he certainly chose not to exercise his divinity. I'll give you an illustration using omniscience as an example. In, in Matthew 24, verse 36, the disciples tell him, when will it be that the Son of Man comes? Jesus, limiting his omniscience, says, only the Father knows. I don't know the day, I don't know the hour, only the Father knows that. But in John chapter 1, when Nathanael came to Jesus, Philip brought Nathanael, Jesus looks at Nathanael and said, I saw you, Nathanael, under the fig tree. Nathanael was shocked because Jesus was omniscient. He knew that Nathanael was under the fig tree, and Jesus saw him. He was cognizant of where Nathanael was, even though Nathanael wasn't in his presence. And what was Nathanael's response? He says, well, Rabbi, you're the son of God. He recognized he was in the presence of God. So while Jesus was fully God, he emptied his entire essence into the person of a slave, a servant, a man, he was still completely God. And he chose at certain moments not to exercise his divinity, his power. Yet despite this, the scriptures tell us he was a servant. He served. He was a slave. And I want you to walk with me through the last couple of weeks of Jesus' life, looking particularly at two instances. And so to do that, I want you to flip over to Matthew chapter 20. And I just want to sort of walk through this story with you. Jesus had been making his way to Jerusalem. Remember, he set his face to go to Jerusalem because he knew he was going there to die for us. He knew he was going to be become sin for us. And so, the mother of the sons of Zebedee, this is verse 20 of chapter 20, mother of the sons of James and John, still convinced that Jesus was intent on building a physical, earthly kingdom in Israel, comes to Jesus and says to him, Lord, when you come in your kingdom... Is it possible for my two boys, because they're really special kids, you know, is it possible for my two boys to have exalted positions in your kingdom, one sitting on a throne on your left-hand side and one sitting on your throne in your, on, on your right-hand side? And Jesus responds to her and basically says, that's not going to work. But the disciples hear about this and they become indignant what in the world is she doing? Because that's the position that I want. I, I was kind of figuring that I would be, you know, if, if he's the king, I could be the prime minister. And they became indignant. And so there is this underlying tension amongst these disciples because they're vying for position. 
Look what Jesus says. Verse 25, Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So Jesus teaches these proud, grasping, sinful men and women a very valuable lesson based on his example. But they don't hear. They don't get it. So they make their way to Jerusalem, and the, the story goes on. They go through the, the process of triumphal entry and that last week of Jesus' life in Jerusalem. Now I want you to flip over to John 13. This is the night before Jesus is, Jesus is crucified. They're in the upper room, about to celebrate the Feast of the Passover. There's still hard feelings. There's bitterness. There's resentment. Nobody has taken the time to prepare for the foot washing, which was a critical thing in that day. People walked in sandals. Their feet would be dirty. And the way that they would eat together was they would lie. And, and if the way it worked is that you would lie and somebody's feet would be kind of right here. So it was pretty important that while you're eating at the table, the person next to you had clean feet. And, and nobody had made provision to have this done. Everyone's too proud to even get a slave organized to do this. And so Jesus sees what's happening. And he gets up. And I'm sure that as he took off his outer robe and wrapped a towel around himself, I'm sure that the disciples were mortified. And we, and we read in the passage that Peter was outspoken about his discomfort with this. Because in, a, in the Jewish culture, you were not allowed to require a Jewish slave to do this. A Jewish slave could say, I'm not doing that. It's too demeaning. It's too belittling. It's too humbling. It's too de debasing. It's too demeaning. I'm not doing that. So Jesus stands up quietly and he takes off his outer garment and he wraps a towel around himself and he gets a basin and he begins to wash the disciples' feet. And then he was finished. when he was finished, he said this. Look at John 13, verses 12. And following. And when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garment and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then your teacher, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, so also ought you to wash one another's feet, for I have given you 
an example that you should follow. <laughs> like this is, this is breathtaking. The hum- you have God in the flesh who is serving. God who humbled himself, who left heaven. He didn't grasp the position that he had in equality with God. But he humbled himself and was born in a manger. And there he was, possessing all of the attributes of divinity. He knew what they were thinking. He knew what Judas was going to do. And yet he stands up, takes off his outer garment, wraps himself with a towel, takes a pail of water, and begins to wash the feet of those proud, arrogant, self-righteous men. And he says to them, that's your example. And that's the whole point of Philippians chapter 2. He's our example. He's our example. You see, we're called to serve one another. We're called to be the last, to be the least, to get to the back of the line. If you want to know if you're a proud person, just sit down this afternoon and take a piece of paper and begin to write a list of the people that you serve. The length of that list will define the pride in your heart. Because Christians serve others. And Christians serve others Because that's the example. That is the calling of Jesus. He obeyed his father and he humbled himself. And he served. Service is fundamental. It's who we are. It characterizes us. It defines us. A Christian humbly serves others, particularly other Christians, but not exclusively. We serve. When we were meeting this week to talk about the service... Kenzie just mentioned, she said, we're short of drummers. We're we're looking for drummers. And she said, in a church this size, there's got to be more than two people who play the drums. And I said, you know what? I'm going to say something on Sunday morning. (laughs) Because we need you to serve us. And you might respond, well, I'm not that good. And I would respond, well, you're proud. Because you don't want to look bad in front of everybody. You don't want to get the beat wrong. You'll get better. You'll grow. We need you to serve. Proud people don't. Proud people don't serve. Generally, proud people have never come to the place where they've bowed the knee before Jesus and acknowledged his absolute lordship. But when you do that, like our master, we begin to have a heart to serve, and God opens doors for us to serve. And so I'd encourage you to follow that example. The third example is Christ's humility and death. In verse 8, we read this, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Even death on a cross. The cross 
was not spoken about in polite Roman society. In, in Roman society, the cross, crucifixion, was profane. It was profanity. A Roman citizen couldn't be crucified. It was too horrific to even speak about. The cross was designed to be both horrific and humiliating. It was barbaric and degrading. It was meant as a deterrent, and therefore it was done publicly. So if you go to Israel, I know some of you are going to Israel this week, you will go to the garden tomb. If you go to the back of the garden tomb and you'll see the place of the skull to your left, you look down to your right and you'll see a bus station. And the bus station is there because that's where the roads have connected for thousands of years. And Jesus was crucified in a public place, in a public way, where people would walk by and see him. It was a deterrent. It was determined by the Romans to do it most publicly, to stop insurrection. Jesus was stripped naked. And he was nailed to the cross. The victim was to be shamed, to be humiliated as he endured and sometimes she endured an excruciatingly slow death. But I love Hebrews chapter, chapter 12, verse 2, where the author says this. That Jesus endured the cross and he despised the shame. The Romans tried to humiliate Jesus, but he despised the shame. He was disdainful of the shame. He was contemptuous of the shame. Why? Well, again, the author of the Hebrews tells us, because of the joy that was set before him. Because of what he knew he was accomplishing. Because he knew that through his suffering and through the Romans' attempt to humiliate him, he was going to redeem an innumerable company of people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation and gather us around the throne of God. The vision of salvation so overwhelmed him that the shame just didn't matter. And so he humbled himself and embraced the shame and the humiliation and the degradation. And now Paul, by virtue of setting Jesus as our example, tells us to do the same. Jesus says to us in Mark 8 and other places, Mark 8, 34 is one, that if anyone would follow me, he must deny himself and pick up his or her cross and follow me. You see, the cross defines us. And today it is still a subject that many of us are ashamed about. As Ethan said in his testimony, he didn't want to get bullied at school. So it's easy just to be quiet about the cross. Because there's still shame associated with the cross. Some people will laugh at us. Some people think we're fools to believe such nonsense. Some people will call us bigots and haters. Some people, when we talk about the cross, if we talk about the cross, they'll call us intolerant. And narrow-minded, because surely all roads lead to God, don't they? 
Sometimes we might be bypassed for a promotion at work. We may lose friends. People will think, as I've said, we're fools. The gospel, the cross, for some, is an offensive message. And it's easy for us to hide. It's easy for us to sort of pretend that we're not Christians, even though in our hearts we know we are. We're proud. And we don't want to be associated with the cross. That wasn't Paul. Remember he went to Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 2? He says, when I went, I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. Like Paul's life revolved around the cross. The essence of who he was was all about the cross. It was about the message of salvation. It was about what God had done in Christ to reconcile lost sinners to himself. The cross absolutely gripped Paul. It was the locus of his ministry because through the cross, God had redeemed Paul. And Paul was proud of the cross. That's why he says in Galatians, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, when I boast, the only thing I boast in is the cross. I'm not going to be quiet about it. I'm not going to be subtle about it. I don't care if people get upset. I don't care if I get stoned. I don't care if I get thrown out of town. I don't care if riots happen because the cross is all about salvation. What God has done to save a wretch like me. And so Christian humility is all about unreservedly embracing the cross, the message of the gospel, being bold, being up front, being courageous, being open. Are you ashamed of the gospel? Are you ashamed of Jesus? Are you ashamed to say his name? Is it more comfortable to talk about your relationship with God or to talk about Jesus Christ and what he has done? See, pride, pride manifests itself in all kinds of subtle ways, and this is one of the most pernicious, one of the most evil ways that pride roots itself in our souls. When it inclines us to be quiet about Jesus. Humility is a disregard for the humiliation that may come. Humility is being able to despise the shame. Humility is being able to dismiss it because of the value of the cross, because of what Christ has done for you on the cross. Because on the cross, Christ saved you. Because of the cross, you have eternal life. Because of the cross, you are a child of God. Because of the cross, your life has been radically transformed. Because of the cross, you have eternal life. Despise the shame. Be contemptuous of the humiliation that people throw because the cross is so worthy. And Christ is so worthy. Don't let pride keep you quiet. And lastly, Christ's humility and exaltation. Finally, Paul says this, therefore, God has highly exalted him 
and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. That's true today. It'll be true tomorrow. It'll be true at the end of time when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and God. But I want you to notice this. Exaltation follows humility. The one who in humility obeyed his father, the one who in humility served proud, arrogant men, The one who in humility went to the cross and became sin for us is now exalted to the highest place. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And what Jesus demonstrates is this, that in the kingdom of God, the path to exaltation is always through humility. It's through obedience, it's through serving, and it's through rejoicing and boldly proclaiming the cross. And this is the path that God intends us to follow. So let me just read you two quick verses. James 4.10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. 1 Peter 5.6, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that at the proper time he may exalt you. Humility is the path to exaltation in the kingdom of God. It always, always is. But hear this, exaltation in the kingdom is a precarious and dangerous place to be because we're proud, because pride adheres to our nature and our character until that day that we finally get out of these bodies and we see him face to face. It will be a battle that we will always fight. It's so easy to be proud, proud of our position, proud of our gifts, Our office, our role, our wealth, our capacities, our intelligence. And it's so easy to forget that what we do, we do for the glory of God. So easy to miss that little phrase at the very end, that every tongue would confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, even in his exaltation... It was about bringing glory and honor and praise and worship to God the Father, not God the Son, not in in Christ's heart. Now, we worship him, but his focus was the glory of his Father. Even in his exaltation, Christ humbly gave glory to God. So I say this to myself, pastors, worship leaders, elders, people who are successful in life or in business or in your profession, people who have been given gifts of intelligence, physical ability, wisdom, have been exalted to positions of leadership or wealth or influence, can easily begin to think, you know what, I am sort of a big deal. I really am a big deal. Look at me. I'm really something. Look at all that I have accomplished. Pride will tell you that. 
And it's so easy in the kingdom, particularly for leaders in the kingdom, to be glory robbers, to steal what is rightfully God's and accrue it to ourselves, to take what God has given to us and say, because of the, give, the, 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 the kindness of God, because of the grace of God, I'm a pretty big deal, and begin to pat ourselves in the back and begin to puff ourselves up. And it happens all the time in the church. The self-aggrandizing happens all the time in the church where we use the pulpit or we use our position in order to flatter ourselves that we're some sort of big deal. When I think about all the pastors who have fallen in these last number of years, whose ministries have come crashing down, in their pride they did one of three things. In their pride they either stopped obeying God and fell into sin. In their pride they either stopped loving people and their church became or their ministry became some sort of big deal and people became secondary somebody else can worry about the people stopped serving or they stopped glorying in the cross and the simple gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and changed the message made it more palatable more comfortable more acceptable It's a dangerous place to be exalted in the kingdom of God. Pray for your new pastor who's coming someday. Pray for your elders. It's a dangerous place to be because pride is pernicious, it is insidious, and Satan uses it. And the only answer is to do what Jesus did. Come to that place where we recognize that everything that we do is for the glory of God. God the Father. I love what the Apostle Paul asks in 1 Corinthians 4. And he says this. What do you have that you did not receive? Nothing. Nothing. My health, my intellect, my ability to speak. Everything that I have, any wealth that I have, any intelligence that I have, anything that I have, anything that you have is a gift of God. So then he asked this question. If then you received it as a gift of God, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Why, why do we boast? Why do we boast? See, the key, the key to humility is being passionate about the glory of God. Key to humility, the key, even if God does exalt you and promote you at work and gives you a position and gives you leadership and gives you authority and gives you a role that others might envy, the key to not, not falling and not bringing discredit on Christ and on, on his kingdom, the key is to get up every morning and say, Lord, everything that I have, everything that I am, every little smidgen of intelligence, every physical ability, every capacity that I have to make money, anything that I have, I recognize that every, every scintilla of it is from you. And today I give it back. 
It's for your glory and your honor and your praise. For 30 some years now, I've, well, for 32 years, I preached at the church in Georgetown. And every single Sunday before I get up to preach, I would pray a really simple little prayer. And I prayed the same prayer this morning. And the prayer was this, Lord, glorify yourself through this sermon, whether I come across as a success or a failure. It's my dumb little prayer. And it's my attempt to say, God, everything that I am, everything that I have is a gift from you to me. Use me now for your glory and your honor. Do that tomorrow morning before you get out of bed. Think about how God has blessed you, what he has given you, the strengths that he has poured into your life, the capacities that you have to, to impact this world, the role that you have in the lives of other people. And just simply say, Lord, I recognize everything, all of it is a gift from you. I'm nothing. Use me today for your glory and your honor. Let me be for your praise. And if you do that, you'll be living a life worthy of the gospel. Let's pray together. Father, we confess again that we are proud people. We're inclined to self-aggrandizing. We relate with the mother of the disciples who wanted their sons to have a prominent place, wanted her sons to have a prominent place. We relate to those disciples who were just in their indignation, couldn't bring themselves even to arrange for feet washing. Lord, that's who we are. But you've saved us, you've put your spirit within us, and now you call us to walk differently. Walk worthy of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Walk worthy of the kingdom as citizens who have been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of God's beloved son. So I pray, Lord, that you would humble us. That we would come to that place where we recognize that you are Lord, that we will obey you, that we will serve others, that we will boast in the cross, and that we will do everything that we do for the honor and the glory of Jesus, that we will not steal your glory. And I pray, Lord, that as we live this way, that that humility will lubricate the flow of love in this church, that it will just grease the wheels, and that we will consider others more important than ourselves, that we will have the mind of Christ. And that you'll be pleased and you'll be blessed, Lord, as we grow into the church that you've called us to be. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.